When you meet some guy who's talking about two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs, you're listening to a liberal. You're listening to someone who does not believe in the authority of the Word of God. Why? Because they say, how could Isaiah write about Cyrus 175 years before he's born? Because God wrote through Isaiah. How can Daniel write about all these kingdoms ever before they happen? Because our God knows the future. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we pick up where we last left off in our study of Daniel chapter 7, a book some have called the Revelation of the Old Testament because there is so much prophecy outlined in it. As we join Dr. Brogy, he brings us up to speed and addresses the dream Daniel had of the four beasts and how it compares to the dream had by King Nebuchadnezzar, whose account was in Daniel chapter 2. Would you take the Word of God, please, this morning and turn to the book of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is the revelation of the Old Testament. What revelation is to the new, Daniel is to the old. And if you haven't already discovered it, it's very difficult to understand the revelation that was given by Jesus Christ to John without a proper, clear understanding of this book. And that's why we're studying Daniel, and we will follow it, if God allows, by the book of Revelation. Now, most students of prophecy understand that this chapter that we're in is one of the most important Old Testament prophetic passages concerning the coming events, because it takes us all the way from the time of the Gentiles beginning with Babylon until the fifth and final kingdom when Messiah himself will come back a second time. And so when you come to the seventh chapter, you turn a corner in your study of Daniel. People who don't believe there's actually a literal kingdom coming, as the Bible promised in the Old Testament, because they say that there's no future for the Jewish people, how mistaken they are, but they don't know what to do with most of the chapters in Daniel. Oh, they preach about Daniel in the lion's den and the three men who don't burn and a few highlights, but they really can't teach Daniel because of presuppositions that they start with. Well, I hope by the time we are finished with Daniel, you will see that every word in here is going to be fulfilled just as God said. The first six chapters we saw are largely historical with a little bit of prophecy in the second and the fourth chapters. The second half of the book is largely prophetic with a little bit of history in it. And so remember, one through six happened chronologically. The visions in seven through 12 happened chronologically, but not after chapter six. They happen in and around chapters one through six, as I showed you last time. So here in the seventh chapter, Daniel is having a dream singular in visions, plural. And God often spoke in dreams and visions in ages past. The first vision that we're studying here in the prophetic chapter section is here in the seventh chapter is a vision that again begins with Babylon and goes all the way until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is giving these visions, not just for the people in our day, but for the people in Daniel's day. Remember the setting. They were away in a time of deportation. They had been carried away by Nebuchadnezzar the king, 
And it would be very easy to get discouraged and to begin to think that God had forsaken Israel. But remember, the prophet Jeremiah said that God loves Israel with an everlasting love, that as long as the stars and sun are in the sky and they won't be removed until the second coming and not by accident, God is committed to the nation of Israel. So any teacher, any Bible student who tells you that we are the new Israel, they have misrepresented the Word of God. We're not the new Israel. We are the church, and the church is distinct from Israel. And God's not done with Israel. Just as He used them to bring about the first coming of Messiah, He will use them again to bring about the second coming of Messiah. We saw the chapter divided into three major portions. Uh, In the first three verses, we have the introduction to the vision. And we saw about the time when Daniel was given this dream and visions. And then we saw the circumstances around it. Then in verses 4 through 14, if you remember, we found the information that was in the vision. And God unfolds it in five different parts. First, in verses 4 through 7 here, there are four great empires that will be raised up, starting in Daniel's day all the way until the return of the Messiah. Then, if you remember, uh, we studied... uh, and, And by the way, let me just say parenthetically here, that this vision of these kingdoms are identical to chapter 2, but different. They are different in that chapter 2, if you remember, and you might want to go back and listen to it if you weren't here for that message. He's dealing with these successive kingdoms from an outward political point of view. But in this chapter, he's dealing with these kingdoms from an inward spiritual point of view. And that's very important to remember. So we studied the, uh, the nations. Then we, uh, in verse 8, he turns to the Antichrist. And we saw some of his character traits. Uh, More is said about the Antichrist in the book of Daniel than any other book of the Bible. Now, the Revelation will fill in some more details, as will Paul in his letter to the church at Thessalonica. But more is said about this man in this book than any other book. We've seen there are a number of titles, over 30, that are given in the Bible. Some of the more well-known titles are found here in Daniel's, the seventh chapter, where he's called the little one or the little horn, depending on your translation. In the eighth chapter, he's called the king of fierce countenance. Uh, he's called the prince who's to come in the ninth chapter. Uh, he's called the despicable person, the willful king in the eleventh chapter. The prophet Zechariah calls him a foolish shepherd, a worthless shepherd. Paul calls him a man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness and the son of perdition. He's called in this book, and especially in the Revelation, the beast. But most of you know him by his most popular name, used only once in the Scripture in John's first letter, where he's called Antichrist. And so God, through Daniel, tells us something about the nations. He tells us something about the coming Antichrist. But then he tells us about the judgment of Jehovah. When you come to verses 9 and 10, the discouragement that you might have after reading verse 8 is lifted because you see that God is sovereign. And there will come a time in human history when it will appear like God has forgotten the world, especially those who live during the time of the Great Tribulation. But at the appointed time, as Daniel articulates it, the righteous judge will come and he will deal with this beast. He will deal with him in the same way that he will deal with every lost person. Every lost person will spend an eternity, the Scripture says, 
and the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And so when Paul wrote to the church at second, in 2 second Thessalonians, he said, at the coming of Christ, he will slay with his breath this Antichrist. He will bring him to death, but also to everlasting judgment. Because just as your body, if you've been saved, is not suited to walk on streets of gold, neither is the unbeliever's body suited to walk in a place the Scripture refers to as hell. Then in verses 13 and 14, again setting the context, we found the crowning of the Messiah. Uh, that the Father who decrees all judgment, just as the New Testament teaches, He allows it to unfold under the authority of the Messiah, the Son of Man. And so that's where we've been so far. We're introduced to the vision. We're given certain critical information. Now this morning we come to the interpretation of the vision. And while, again, um, what he saw in the second chapter was disturbing to him, this vision really shakes up the prophet Daniel. There's a new dimension to it that is inward and spiritual that will leave him trembling. And if you understand it correctly, it should change your life as well. Now, as you can see there on your outline, there are three parts to the information this angelic being gives to Daniel. First, we begin with Daniel's puzzled request. And we see his puzzlement expressed in at least two ways. First, I want you to observe from verse 15 that Daniel's pu uh, puzzlement is seen in his distress. Verse 15 begins the portion that we've entitled, again, the interpretation of the vision. But the information doesn't stop. While he gives an interpretation, he also gives us some new information that we didn't find in the middle section of the chapter. And I don't want you to miss this. There's this conversation that transpires between Daniel and this attendant angel, and it leaves the man distressed. Notice verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The King James puts it this way, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body. Not bad. A little more literal. The most literal reading is out in the margin. If you have a New American Standard with marginal notes, and if you don't own one, you should get one, it will sometimes give you literal renderings out in the margin that when you go from the original language, in this case, Aramaic, we're in the Aramaic section, or in other portions of Daniel, Hebrew. Remember chapter 2 through 7 is in Aramaic. While chapter 7 begins a new section in the book and that he moves from the third person pronoun to the first person pronoun, he is now giving a first-hand account. Chapters 2 through 7 are in Aramaic, if you remember that, for a reason. Because he's speaking about the Gentile nations as it will affect them. And that was their language in this day. But sometimes in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, the three languages of the Bible, it's a little wooden to translate it exactly as it appears in the original. But if you go out in the margin, you will see it says literally, I, Daniel, was distressed in my spirit in its sheath, in its sheath. And so the body is viewed here as containing the spirit. It's like a sheath containing a knife. Next time you guys are hunting and you have a knife in your sheath, Think of the knife as your spirit, as your soul, as the immaterial portion of you, and think of your sheath as the body. Your body is like a sheath. 
and that it contains your soul and your spirit. And the moment you die, though your body is laid in some grave, the real you inside of you is either absent from the body and present with the Lord or absent from the body and in a place called Hades. And someday God will raise up the body of both believers and unbelievers, one body suited for heaven, the other body suited for hell, that will experience pain without ever being consumed in the fire. Now we all have a sense that our persons within us are forever, because as Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, God has written eternity into our hearts. And so Daniel, in describing what's going on on the inside, says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Why is he so alarmed and burdened? Because there's something about prophecy that while it's sweet in your mouth, it's bitter in your belly. That's the effect prophecy should have on you. It should be sweet in your mouth. There's a sweetness to it, a sweet dimension to it but there's a bitter dimension to it. That's precisely how John in the Revelation describes it. We read in Revelation 10.10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I ate it, my stomach was made bitter. Prophecy is bitter and it's sweet when you understand the promises and the deliverance that's coming. It's sweet to the believer. But when you understand the persecution that's coming, the harassment that's coming on God's people, the saints, and it has already begun, but it will unfold in a way like we've never seen it in human history after the rapture of the church, though it's present today because the spirit of Antichrist is already at work. There's a bitterness to it. When you think about the eternal judgment that is coming on the lost, there's a bitterness to it. So part of prophecy should excite you The other part should burden you. You will be burdened to warn men and women and boys and girls to flee from the wrath to come. That's what Peter said. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God? So we need to ask a question. Why is he so alarmed? Why is he so burdened? Why is he so distressed? There are two reasons if you study these verses carefully. The first concerns the time span of the coming. The second, the character of these coming kingdoms. So first, the time span of the coming kingdoms. Let's think about the time span. Daniel knew how long the Jews would be in exile. How did he know? Because the prophet Jeremiah wrote about it ever before they were carried away into exile. The prophet said by the Spirit of God that this exile would last for 70 years. Uh, When we come to Daniel 9, we're going to find Daniel the prophet reading Jeremiah the prophet. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Jeremiah 25, 11. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah 28, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, namely Jerusalem. Perhaps at one time, Daniel had hoped that there would be a revival amongst the people of God. Remember, they are carried into exile as the disciplinary hand of God is at work. He disciplines those whom he loves. 
Because they had rebelled against them, God was dealing with them. And Daniel, you know, had to have been longing and waiting and hoping for a revival amongst the people of God. Maybe he thought that God, because the prophet Jeremiah said he'd bring them back into Jerusalem, that he'd gather the Jewish people from across the planet as a contemporary writer of his day, Ezekiel wrote of, and Messiah's kingdom would come. But Daniel began to recognize that was not going to happen in his lifetime. Daniel had known the prophet Isaiah who predicted 175 years before King Cyrus is ever born that a guy is going to come to the throne. His name is Cyrus, and he's going to let the people go. He had read Isaiah. He knew what Isaiah had written. Isaiah, of course, lived long before him. But he knew what Isaiah the prophet had written that God is going to raise up a king by the name of Cyrus who's going to let the people go. And of course, Cyrus is already coming to the forefront in Daniel's lifetime. Let me read the Isaiah text. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. Why? Because the king's heart is in the hand of God. He turns it however he wishes. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And so now Cyrus has become a well-known figure in Daniel's day, and maybe he's thinking since the kingdom will be headquartered in Jerusalem as the Old Testament prophets speak, that the kingdom will come. But as he begins to think and meditate, first as he is given a dream by Nebuchadnezzar of four successive kingdoms, the fourth kingdom coming in two parts, we saw there was a gap of time, and then a fifth kingdom that it would have to take a period of time. Now, before he is done, he sees the kingdom of Babylonia fall, and then he sees the Medes and the Persians come into the forefront. But even if there was a rapid rise and fall like there had been with Babylon, it would take at least two centuries and therefore would never happen in his lifetime. But then when he is given this vision and this dream, he realizes, oh no, this is a long period of time. This is what the New Testament, what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles. And we, don't confuse that with the fullness of the Gentiles. When the church is complete, the times of the Gentiles begins with Babylon and it goes all the way until the second coming of the Lord Jesus. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. But beyond the time span that distressed him, the character of the coming kingdoms brought great distress in his life. It kept alarming him. Now, the kingdom that Daniel lived in was relatively benign. Uh, we saw the symbolism of the kingdom that he initially began with, a lion with wings, whose wings are plucked and then given a human heart, and it perfectly represents the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who's humbled and then given a regenerated heart. You'll meet him in heaven someday. But the kingdoms that follow are far fiercer. And this final fourth kingdom, this revived kingdom with a little horn, absolutely terrifies him. I said, again, if you study prophecy, and if you study it properly, when you understand the horror of the coming great tribulation, what Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble, 
when you understand the persecution that God's people are going to face, when you understand the terrible, vicious reign of the coming Antichrist, when you understand the eternal wrath that lost people will come over, a healthy study of prophecy will shake up your sheath. Your spirit within will be so moved, it will literally, as we will see before we're done this morning, even affect your body. And that's how Daniel was affected. It moved him not to complacency. It moved him to action. Now, beyond the puzzlement as seen in his distress, I want you to think about Daniel's puzzlement that led to his desire. Point B, if you're taking notes. Whatever natural shyness Daniel had in approaching this celestial being as he's identified in subsequent chapters, and even here in the context, it's overcome all at once. Look at verse 16. I approached one of those. One of those who? Well, we already studied them last week. One of those myriads of myriads of angels that are described back in verse 10. I approached one of those. Why he approached this particular one, we don't know. Maybe it was Gabriel, who will be later named in the book of Daniel. But I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So this vision so grips him, any reluctance that he has is removed, and he goes and he approaches this angel. Now, usually, when one approaches one of God's angels, they do so with fear and trembling. In fact, we will see that that's Daniel's reaction in the 10th chapter. But in this particular event, he is so overcome with the vision, and he wants to understand it. All reluctance is gone, and he approaches this holy angel. Now, that's Daniel's puzzled request. That moves us, like a three-act play, to Daniel's prophetic review, given in verses 17 through 27. It's very interesting how this angel guides Daniel through the visions which God had just given him. And I want you to notice first that God gives him the interpretation in summary fashion, and then he will give him the interpretation in specific detail. So we begin with the vision interpreted in summary. First, there's a general interpretation in 17 and 18, and then in 19 to 27, he moves past that general outline and he fills in all the details. Look at verse 17. He begins by speaking of the four passing kingdoms. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. He described, if you remember, the great empire of Babylon. He described the expansive empire of Medo-Persia. He described the sprawling empire of Greece. And then he described the extensive empire of Rome. And he says here that there are four kings. He described them, remember, as four vicious animals. A winged lion, remember that? A bear, a ferocious bear, picturing Medo-Persia, remember that? Then the leopard, producing grease with the rapidity in which Alexander the Great, by prophecy, is going to conquer the world. And then the fourth beast is so unusual, there's not an animal to really describe him, so he doesn't relate him to a specific animal. And he says here in verse 17 that these four kings will arise from the earth. Now, I've told you before that next to Genesis, the number one attacked book in all the Bible is Daniel. They hate Daniel. 
because he is writing the future ever before it happens. So they want to put a late date on Daniel. They want to say, well, Daniel didn't write it. Someone centuries after Daniel wrote it, and they're just recording history. Well, that's not Jesus's view. He doesn't call him Daniel the historian. He calls him, quoting Daniel 9, Daniel the prophet. But we will see that even with the late second century date that they put on the book of Daniel, because they're not too smart, (laughs) they are going to miss it. There's going to be some prophecies that will even take place during that time frame after the so-called writing of Daniel. Now, the Jews have always believed in the 6th century writing of Daniel, as as did the church fathers, as did Jesus, as do evangelical scholars. But look, when you've got someone who criticizes Isaiah, there's a pastor in our town who speaks about Tritero Isaiah. When you meet some guy who's talking about two Isaiahs or three Isaiahs, you're listening to a liberal. You're listening to someone who does not believe in the authority of the Word of God. Why? Because they say, how could Isaiah write about Cyrus 175 years before he's born? Because God wrote through Isaiah. How can Daniel write about all these kingdoms ever before they happen? Because our God knows the future. Now, there's a new view that has entered into evangelicalism. There are books that are coming out on InterVarsity Press, once an evangelical press, that says that God does not know the future. That is sheer, unadulterated heresy. And so they attack this verse because they say, well, in verse 3, he said they came out of the sea. But in this verse, he says they will arise from the earth. Remember, in the first section, he's using symbols. This is apocalyptic literature. And most of the apocalyptic literature in the Scripture will define itself. And so he begins by giving him symbols, but he's not in the symbolic portion. He's giving the interpretation. And so we saw from a number of texts, if you weren't here, you might want to go back and listen to the first of three sermons here in the seventh chapter, we saw from a number of verses that the term sea can be used figuratively. That the great sea here is not literally the Mediterranean Sea, but the mass of humanity as we use it in English sometimes. We say, oh, look at that great sea of people. Well, in verse 17, he's not speaking symbolically, but literally he's giving the the interpretation. And he tells us that these four Beasts, so to speak, are four kings who arise from the earth. There are no contradictions anywhere in the Bible. I will share the gospel with unbelievers, and they say it's filled with contradictions. I say, okay, show me one. Show me one. They're just blowing smoke. They can't find a contradiction in the Bible. There are no contradictions in God's Word because it is God's Word and God makes no mistakes. We're in a series of messages from the book of Daniel. To listen again to today's or any of the messages in this series, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN10. Anyone who has seriously studied the Bible cannot help but acknowledge that it truly is inspired by God through men. 
the amount of fulfilled prophecy that's already occurred, and the prophetic utterances made by different men over a period of centuries that coincide with each other are irrefutable evidence of a great and mighty God. And yet, some have chosen not to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not yet made Christ Lord of your life, let us send you a pamphlet and DVD at no cost that will prove to you that God exists and that He wants a personal and intimate relationship with you. Just call us at 877-787-7478 and ask for, Would You Like God as Your Friend? We'll send it to you at no cost and without obligation. Just call 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the visions and dreams of Daniel as we search the scriptures. <music>